0: It is a great opportunity again to come together, isn't it? How thankful we are that health is as it is for you and me to permit us to gather together to do one of the greatest things we ever do in this life, and that's worship the great God of heaven. Already today, we had a previous opportunity for that, and now tonight as we're assembled yet again, thankful are we to God that He's allowed us this opportunity I would again remind each of us about that upcoming gospel meeting here. Again, make sure to clear your calendar. Put put, of course, that meeting on it, so that we can encourage that meeting, support it, and do all the things that that would be beholding and becoming of us as those that are members at this place. Tonight's lesson I've entitled "The Tragic Consequences of Sin." Brother Joey read a moment ago from 1 Samuel 15, verse 26. And as you'll notice, that not only is the lesson text, but it'll be one we'll refer to again in just a moment as we look more carefully at some of the features of the lesson. I'd like to begin, though, with some of the following observations. As I made preparation for this, it was a bit startling to me to note the number you'll see at the top of that slide. Isn't it amazing how often the word sin, or the word sinful, or the word iniquity, or the word wicked, or something like that occurs in the Bible? Almost 2,000 times words like that occur. I believe it's easy to see that God has a message that He wants you and I to learn carefully. It's the tragic consequences of sin. What happens when you choose to walk down a pathway like that? Well, tonight, as you and I reflect somewhat upon it, We'll begin by observing this. Quite frankly, the entirety of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward surrounds the topic that we're discussing this evening. What do you do about sin? Who's afflicted with it and what are its consequences? And so it is that the last 1,187 chapters discusses this theme. And aren't we thankful that God has an answer? He has provided the answer for it. And tonight, as we develop that in some detail, we'll, of course, appreciate how thankful we can be that God has provided a way that we can get around the tragic consequences of sin. First, let's define what we're talking about. There are many in our world today who are a bit confused as to what sin is. Just because you disagree with me, that doesn't mean you're guilty of sin, Sin is not mere disagreement with somebody. It's not merely a point of view that's different. By definition, the Word of God reveals that this is what sin is. First John 3 verse 4 sets it before us like this, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law, and there it is. And therefore, just merely a difference of opinion. A difference of perspective, that by itself doesn't constitute sin because the matter might be a matter that the Bible hasn't revealed in in such a way that that's the conclusion. But this much we know. When God has identified and declared something, then any other point of view, any other circumstance would then by its very nature be a sin. For those reasons, let's note this. Was sin defined that way? And again, that was in 1 John chapter 3. This next observation is this. If sin is the transgression of the law, you and I are well aware of this fact. The violation of law brings penalty. That's the way it is for the laws of our land, isn't it? If a person violates the law, then there is a recognized and understood penalty that goes along with it. Should we expect any less of the law of God? I think not, because you and I know we don't serve a little God, and therefore there is no little sin. Any violation of His law, regardless of what men may paint it to be, maybe as less or perhaps minor, well, if God has affirmed it, then it's not a minor matter. In fact, could we then appreciate this? Who's guilty of this? We might well start back in 1 Kings eight forty six. 46. And long ago, Solomon made this interesting statement. It was on that occasion of the dedication of the temple, and as a part of his wonderful dedicatory speech that day, he pointed out, "...there is no man that sinneth not." Now that was under the days of the old law of Moses and he stated so clearly and dramatically there is nobody who can claim that he or she is not guilty of violating the law of God. Maybe it's that passage from Paul that's even easier for you and me to remember. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's me and that's you. All of us thus are guilty of this matter of sin. It might be that we can add one more thing to that. We, we know that the law of the land brings a variety of punishments. And it's true that some things are subject to lesser punishment than others. But the law of God reads like this. It is to that passage, I would call your attention in James 1 verse 15... I'll begin reading in verse 13 of that chapter, but isn't it true that James, making this statement, directly said this. As he spoke about God and his reaction to sin and the way in which he deals with it, verse 13, of course, began in a way like this. As you and I ponder and think about that greatness of God, we understand, he says, you and I, when we're drawn away of our own lust." and enticed, then we become such that we can fall away to sin. And sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. I submit that text in Romans six twenty three again states something similar, but in slightly different wording. Not only do we remember all are guilty of sin, but this verse... You and I appreciate how sweetly and majestically it is stated that the wages of sin is death. Now to stop at that point, doesn't it sound as if it's so incredibly serious and negative? All are guilty of this. The end is death. What can I do about it? Well, no wonder the world should languish and desire to know what the rest of the Bible answer is. If it stopped at this point, we'd all be doomed. As you and I close that slide, can't we then note this interesting description? I say this in part because the current society in which we live, and I suppose it's ever been so, really has a very light view of sin. Now, you and I know it well. Individuals who not only choose to do what's wrong, they encourage others to do it, and they even will parade in light of the fact that there's nothing wrong with this quite often you and I may be insulted for not seeing it the way they do. But have you ever noticed the way in which Luke 15 describes this scenario? We'll not revisit the fullness of reading that chapter, but you remember the prodigal son. Jesus told this amazing record in which this this youngster, quite frankly a young man, he asked for his share of the father's inheritance. The father gave it to him, and he proceeded very quickly to gather all together and go off into a far country. And the text says he wasted his substance in riotous living. May I ask what the father's reaction was? Now you and I remember while the, while the lad was gone, the dad, it would seem, looked with longing and yearning character for the return of the boy. Verse 24 says, Upon the son's return, the father gave this description of him, This. My son was dead. Now may I ask, the son was alive as ever, at least in terms of physical character. He was breathing, he was eating, but the dad said he was dead. Now what does that mean? Well, obviously it means this. He was spiritually dead, but physically alive. Now isn't it true that anybody thus that's in sin, from God's perspective, the person's dead? Because remember, in the parable, the Father was God. And this boy, this one who was living in the land of sin, God said he was dead. Therefore, may you and I never think that sin is a light matter, a trivial matter, a flippant matter, for it isn't. And that touches everything then that is a part of your life and mine. What I choose to say, the clothes I choose to wear the manner in which I set before others either a good or bad example of the Pippin Church of Christ, for example. If it's the latter, I'm guilty of sin. But you'll notice, I'm dead if I choose to live like this. One more verse we might add to that is that unforgettable text that opens Isaiah 59. There, the children of Israel. They too had been in such a position... To note the great teaching of God, but they sadly had chosen to ignore it, to neglect it. It was in that way then God commissioned Isaiah to say this The Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. The problem wasn't God, the problem was them. They were happy to live in sin. They were satisfied with it. They were content with it. Part of this lesson tonight will be to remind all of us to never, ever be content to live in sin because its consequences are tragic. As you and I close this slide, then, and move to the next one, we've at least set the stage of what will happen if we choose to live in sin. But let's insert this beautiful and dramatically wonderful slide. The Bible, of course, goes on. Not only does it present that humans are guilty of sin, and not only does it present what will happen if that's unforgiven, it also gives us that great message of how it can be forgiven and what will happen if it is. This good message, this good news, of course, is the gospel. Let's start at the top. Our God has a wonderful plan whereby sin can be forgiven. And might we take note, it required His initiative. I couldn't do it by myself. Isn't it true? Without the shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22. And therefore, as you and I think about the character of blood, we know we have our own blood, but the fact is, as we've noted earlier, you and I are sinners, and so our blood is not pure and sinless and, guilt- and guilt-free. and guilt But the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4. And therefore we're stuck. We need blood, but there's no blood good enough except one, the great Son of God. God, in fact, gave a commission. He sent His Son into the world to do for you and I what we couldn't do for ourselves, to shed blood, pure blood, sin-free blood. That blood, of course, if I am covered with it and if you are as well, therein is the great characteristic of celebration and rejoicing. And so as we come to the next on the slide, let's note these two verses. In Psalm 32, verse 1, we have a great pronouncement made. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now David lived roughly a thousand years before Jesus was born. And yet even under the character of the Old Testament law, David longed for a time and he beautifully considered a day and a means whereby God wouldn't impute sin to man. This might be a good time for us to give thought to what does the word impute mean? Again, the text reads, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That word impute, as you can see, means to account. You and I each individually have an account in heaven. And God's keeping a record. The text reads, it's a blessed thing when God will not put sin on my record or on your record. In other words, there's a means whereby that's forgiven. A means whereby it is not considered by God, not accounted to the ledger of your life and mine. David knew in the long ago there was a means coming whereby that would happen. Today you and I live in the sunlit era of Christianity in which that great sacrifice has already been made. Another verse that goes along with this one in Romans 4-7 is the very one that Paul quoted. Paul quoted from David in Psalm 32 and now explained it under the banner of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14-6. And yet, with the suffering of Christ and His death on the cross, there is a means such that you and I do not have to have sin imputed to our account. Aren't you thankful for that message? We all can be. Let's read onward. We noted earlier that this sin of which we speak, aren't you sometimes interested to know how lightly the human family can speak about sin? Oh, it's treated as if it's so minor. It's nothing significant. But that isn't the message of the Bible. Now, it's true that different sins have different elements of consequence in terms of this physical life. But any transgression of God's law is serious. I would invite you to reconsider Matthew 18. Beginning in verse 23 of that chapter is a memorable parable. And again, we won't read all of it, for it goes all the way through verse 35. But Jesus spoke about this parable. There was a man who, as a citizen of the kingdom, he owed the king a lot. A lot. Ten thousand talents is what he owed the king, may I say, to the actual nature of the kingdom. And yet the time came for a reckoning... And the man appeared before the king, and he begged and pleaded for mercy. I cannot pay it. It's more than I have at my disposal. The king, in mercy and in graciousness, extended to that man forgiveness of that debt. The tragic thing is, that man, though, went out, and there was someone who owed him a piddly little amount. Isn't it fascinating to notice this one who had been forgiven of so much would not extend forgiveness to this other one because this other one couldn't pay either. He didn't even have that little amount. And he begged and pleaded, have mercy on me, give me time and I'll pay it. But this person would have no mercy at all. When others were aware of his reaction, they went and told the king the king hauled him back in and said, I forgave you of so much and you wouldn't forgive your neighbor of so little. Cast him into prison until he's paid every bit of it. May I ask you to again reflect, that again is a parable intended to teach you and me of the enormity of sin. There is no such thing before God as a little sin. And yet in His majesty, He extends the opportunity for forgiveness But never, ever may we reach the conclusion, well, it's just a little thing and God will overlook it. God doesn't work that way. Sin's never overlooked. It's only forgiven. Aren't you thankful to have the opportunity to be a Christian? Forgiveness is extended to you and me. Not because of anything we necessarily deserve, but because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. As we develop that point more thoroughly, a whole host of Bible verses not only explain this, but set it before us in ways that you and I are now about to see. In Hebrews 9 verse 14, we have a picture given to you and me about the perfection of Christ. That He, in fact, He's far greater than any earthly tabernacle, if you please. But in so doing, He, through the great approach to God, is able to even purge the conscience. Is your conscience clean tonight? That's a great thing that you and I, as those who would desire to serve God, should always ask. The conscience, you see, is that particular thing that can be troubled if our actions violate our value judgments. And so it is. Through Christ, we have the opportunity to walk with a clean conscience, purged, undefiled, That's because of the blood of Christ. To that, might we add this passage in Romans 3.25. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, set before them the avenue and the perfection of that propitiation for our sins. We've noted more than once about that word, and it's a bit of a long word, propitiation. May we never lose sight. All it means is atoning sacrifice. Jesus' blood... It was a sacrifice for your sins and mine. And because of it, we can live forgiven, sanctified, justified, and whole. But without that blood, we're cankered in sin, mired in separation from God. We are overwhelmed and overcome inasmuch as we're servants in the devil's kingdom. That next set of verses we might consider, cast a spotlight on the power of the Lord's blood. Sometimes we sing a song, there's power in the blood. Maybe that's one of our favorite invitation songs, power in the blood. Well, so there is. In Ephesians 1.7, echoed later in Colossians 1.14, didn't Paul write that you and I are forgiven through the blood of the Son. There is no forgiveness apart from that blood. Our world would like to believe that you can be forgiven. Just live a clean life as at least it's regarded by most. That won't do it. If it were enough for that to do it, why did Jesus ever come to this earth? If a person can go to heaven that way, why in the world did the Lord ever send His Son? In fact, didn't Paul ask it that way in Galatians 2.21? He there rather directly said, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ died in vain. Now there, if it were possible to ever be cleansed and to live rightly beneath the old law of Moses, there was never then a need for Jesus to come. Fact is, it wasn't possible, and it's not possible today without Him. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. As you then race along with me to the bottom of that slide, isn't it sweet to reconsider Revelation 1 verse 5? In the opening stanza of the Revelation, we are are washed in His blood. I like that word wash, don't you? We're accustomed to washing dishes, washing clothes, washing cars. And we do that to remove the dirt, to remove the grime, to remove what ought not be there, at least in our estimation, to restore it to cleanliness. Your life and mine, in many ways, the same thing happens, but we don't wash in tide because didn't 1 Peter 3.21 say, not to remove the filth of the flesh, but we're baptized in the blood of Christ. There's the detergent, there's the cleansing agent. And so we gain a feeling, we gain an understanding, do we not? About what sin is and the only way to remove it. That text in Revelation 1, I suppose, leads us into the next slide. Because the consequences of sin then can be great. I thought we would select a few examples in the Word of God, examples that set before us the enormity of sin, and hopefully remind us every moment of every day not to give in to it. Let's start in Genesis 39. There the gentleman was Joseph. We remember the record of Joseph so well. Here was a fairly young man who was sold into slavery by his own brothers. He was taken far, far away into Egypt. There, by the blessing and providence of God, he came into the house of Potiphar. He, in fact, did a great service to Potiphar. He watched over the things of Potiphar's house, and Potiphar was rather successful because of it. The time came that Potiphar's wife had eyes for Joseph. She, in fact, urged him, strongly so, every day, lie with me. Now, maybe it would be easy for you and I to notice that seems as if it may have been such a minor matter. After all, it would have allowed Joseph even greater notoriety. He might have risen in Egypt even more notably than he already had. Not only that, given that Potiphar had been good to him, if I'm good to her wife as she wants, I'll be able to stay here at his house. Things might even get even better for me. That isn't the way Joseph looked at it. In verses 9 and following of that chapter, he said, How can I do this thing and sin against God? Joseph knew it wasn't just a matter between him and this woman, God was watching. I cannot do this and please God. Joseph knew very well about the enormity of the sin. He knew what the consequences would be. And even if nobody on earth ever found out, of course Potiphar might, but even if he didn't, God would know it. And that's still true about your life and mine today. Nobody else may know that I'm trifling with this sin, but God knows it. In Proverbs 15, 3, it reads, "...the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good." That thing that, that perhaps I'm tempted to do, if I fall prey to it, God's watching. I'd submit that's one thing that could help all of us to keep the devil and his shenanigans at bay. Always remember, no matter what we're doing, God's watching. Is He pleased with what I'm doing? Is He happy with the people I'm with? Did He enjoy hearing what I just said? Or better yet, will He enjoy hearing it if I say this? If we remember that God's watching, it will help us so greatly to remember, this thing is not just about me, it's about my eternity, and the God in heaven is watching. Later in Hebrews chapter, as we get into that book, chapter 4 verse 13, the Hebrew writer put it like this, "...neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight." But all things are naked and open into the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Inasmuch as our God then is watching, witnessing, doesn't that remind us this scene in Genesis 39 is a great reminder. May I add another one to that list though, drawn from the New Testament. Acts chapter 5. The scene here is another telling one. This one I think is particularly prompting. It involves Ananias and Sapphira we remember that these was the early days of the church. There was a need for the church, of course, to grow. It was a brand new thing in many ways. We all appreciate how good a work benevolence can be. Make sure to take care of those that are hungry and those that are bereft. Well, here, these two had sold a part of land. They had brought money. Given it to the apostles. You use this to distribute to the needs of those who are hurting, and those who are hungry, and those who are without. The money was given. The problem is they lied about it. They claimed all of the money had been given when, in fact, they kept back part of it. And Peter very quickly said, It was yours to do with as you saw fit. You could have kept all of it if you wanted. But they chose to give part of it, but claim they gave all of it. Maybe for the fame, the notoriety, maybe for the prestige it would have been theirs. But it brought their death because the text in verses 3 and 4 of Acts 5 says, "'You lied to the Holy Ghost.'" But now, I thought they lied to Peter. Well, maybe they did. But the greater message was they lied to God. And today, every lie we tell is a lie to God. It's a lie that involves him because as Christians, we have promised we're going to do better than this. Isn't it fascinating then to notice this seriousness, the consequences of sin on the slide? We do need to in fairness say this. There are some sins that ought to be cataloged as private. You don't know what I'm thinking I could have terrible thoughts crossing my mind, thoughts that are sinful, but you'll never know it. But God knows it. And those kinds of thoughts will doom me if I don't have adequate forgiveness, of course, from them. And the same is true for you. But it's also true that there are some sins that are public. That is to say, sins that impact other people. We each know this very well, don't we? And so as we think about all of them, aren't we again in this position? All sins have got to be forgiven, whether they be public or whether they're, they're private. But isn't it amazing to think of how serious, even in terms of its consequences, sometimes these public sins can be? I've listed a few of the examples there at the bottom. Maybe there's this teenager. Dad and mom are a bit curious. Son, where were you last night? Well, he wasn't where he knew he ought to be, and so he lies to dad and mom. He tells them a story about where he thinks they wanted him to be, but he really wasn't there. He's lied. And not only that, as you can see on the slide, in almost all cases, dad and mom are going to find out about this. That's just the way it is. While they're in the grocery store, someone says, well, it's interesting, I saw your son... And soon dad and mom learned, son wasn't where they thought he was, not where he said to them that he was either. And suddenly when they have the next conversation, that trust has now been harmed. They just can't trust him anymore like they once could because he lied to them. And so he may not get the keys to the car next time he asks for it either. And suddenly additional chores may be heaped upon him because he can't be trusted anymore. It's a serious thing when you lose trust. It's someone that loves you, someone who has had confidence in you, but because you lied to them and you sought to deceive them, they just can't trust you at least for a while until you earn back that trust. That's just one example. Look at another one. What about that man? He perhaps is not one that's often given to drinking, but he has had a particularly hard day. Maybe even things went so bad because the boss or others really made his life rather miserable. He chooses to have a few beers after work. He ends up getting in an accident that night and sends some person into eternity. Kill somebody. That life can never be reclaimed. And if that person wasn't right with God, that person's been sent to hell that night, basically. Maybe you've known someone who ultimately had a part to play in another person's death because of some sinful activity. Even in this life, sometimes sin can have a very hard set of consequences. We would do well to learn that lesson. As bad as the consequences are here, you and I know eternity is even worse. Let's look at a third example. What about that person who's given to gossip? Maybe again they share some information they don't even know is true. But they say these things about somebody else. Somebody they thought was a brother or sister in Christ and just like it was a minute ago, word reaches this other person. And so a conversation happens. I can't believe you said that about me. This person who has been so often a help to you and your family, what you think, what didn't happen. I never did that. Somebody started that story about me. And now you have been a party to the gossip. You hurt me because of what you've done. You really deeply hurt me. Think about again the trust that's been lost. The brotherhood or sisterhood that's been damaged. It's a serious thing to think about when those kind of activities, even in this life, bring about tragic consequences for sin. I'm sure you and I could add many other examples to this list. Whether it be activities in the home, activities in the family, activities in the church. Sin is serious business. God knows what's best for us and this book provides for us those things that will lead to the healthiest of relationships. You and I just need wisdom to pursue it. That slide takes us to this one which is really the last slide in some ways of the lesson. The consequences of sin take us back to Saul in the Old Testament. I'm sure you appreciated we would revisit it at some point, and now we shall. Saul was the first king of Israel, a man who had many powerful and notable attributes. He was tall. It appears as though he was handsome, but far more important, he started out his reign wise. He wanted to please God. He efficiently led the kingdom. However, by the time we reach 1 Kings 13, we find a man who had let his ego get too big. He began to arrogantly take to himself what only the priest was supposed to do. He was stepping into what God said did not belong to him. It wasn't his right, it wasn't that which pleased God, but he did it anyway. Two chapters later, it seemingly reached a crescendo. You remember that by this point, God had given him a commandment. You go and destroy the Amalekites. Don't save anybody or anything that lives. Saul blatantly disobeyed. He thought it was a light thing. I brought back these for sacrifice. That didn't make any difference. You didn't obey what God said. It didn't matter what you thought. If it might be a good idea or not, the commandment was God was plain. What was the punishment for this sin? The punishment was this. You and I remember that at least most often in the Old Testament, kings were such that their son would be the next king, and then his son would be the next one, and so on down the line. It was a dynasty that was often formed with Saul. It was never to be. God said, through Samuel in punishment to Saul, I'm taking the kingdom from you and giving it to one better than you are because you disobeyed me. Sin has consequences. Saul lost the kingdom. It was given to David. Now, as you and I think about sin and its consequences... We've already noticed in the lesson tonight, it's serious business in this life and surely serious business after this one. In the imagination of your mind, think for just a moment about arriving at the day of judgment. There, all nations are gathered. Jesus Christ is on His throne and He's going to be your judge. And He opens the book and notices that there's a long list of sins With your name at the top of it. And those sins were never forgiven. What will your eternal disposition be? We all know what he's going to say. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Depart from me. Sin has got to be forgiven or I'm lost. Where do you stand tonight? The tragic consequences of sin are enormous. This this conclusion slide sums it all up. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. And today, in this Christian era, we are delight, delightedly blessed to have the blood of Christ. Are you and I using it daily by walking in the light? 1 John 1.7 reads, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Are you walking daily in the light? If so, you're cleansed. Heaven will be your home if you keep walking like that. But if you aren't walking that way, condemnation is yours. You're going to rise to the resurrection of damnation, John 5, 29. The plan of salvation is the very thing that we've hinted at much of this lesson tonight. It's the means whereby sin is forgiven. Believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the name of Jesus and be baptized. If we could assist you in that way tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. If you've become a Christian, begun to walk in this wonderful way, but no longer are you. You have slipped into sin, a habit perhaps, but that habit is dooming you. Come back to your first love. Make confession of it, repent of it, and let us approach God on your behalf. He's promised to forgive it, and you can enjoy again. Jesus will erase those things that He has accounted to you so far, He'll erase them. I like that thought, don't you? If tonight we could be of help to anybody, we'd urge you to do something about it at once and come to the Lord's invitation while together we stand and while we sing.